Hey, 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 film fans! What is up? How the heck are you? Welcome into the Second Day Film Podcast, the official podcast of the Second Day Film Club. It is January 27, 2020. I'm your host, Brandon Champion, joined, as always these days, by Mike Nichols. And Mike, uh, here we are. Day one, living in a post-Kobe Bryant world. It is a sad day. Yesterday sucked. Uh, as we, we got news of the NBA legend, one of the greatest athletes of all time, his tragic passing in a helicopter accident. Really sad day for everyone. And, and yes, this is a film podcast, but I, I, we would be remiss if we didn't just touch on the legacy of the great Kobe Bryant as as basketball fans who grow up watching his greatness. So uh, how you doing today? Um, you know, I think everyone is, is sad. It's a sad thing that uh, happened, especially he lost his daughter in the crash as well. Um, you know, our thoughts are there with his family and, and his friends. Uh, and everyone else on the helicopter, of course. Yeah, there was a lot of other people, I think nine total that mm-hmm. passed. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a tragedy. And, uh, you know, I, I was lucky enough, I got to see him play live in the palace in 2012. Uh, he had the mask. I mean, that's a guy who broke his nose and kept playing basketball, uh, you know, he was uh, he was an excellent basketball player, and uh, yeah, it's a sad day. Yeah, I mean, Kobe Bryant was basically our Michael Jordan, or uh, you know, people in our generation. I mean, we obviously got to see Michael Jordan a little bit mm-hmm. towards the tail end, but Kobe was kind of that guy who, uh, before LeBron, and who basically played the same position as Michael yeah. Jordan. That sort of, you know, we saw him, we watched him on TV, we grew up, we were inspired and in, in awe of him. So. Uh, just a sad, a sad thing that happened, but uh, as they should say in Hollywood, the show must go on. Um, and uh, new rule here at the Second Day Film Podcast, we're going to attack every episode with that Mamba mentality in honor of Kobe Bryant. Does that sound good to you? That sounds good, and let's not forget that he was an Oscar winner. It's true. So it does, it does kind of connect with film a little bit. That's the way to tie it in there, Mike. That's how we do it here at the Second Day Film Podcast. Anyways, big show planned today. Um, of course, our last episode, we did our, our top ten films of the decade. Uh, that you can find that on SoundCloud and iTunes and Apple Podcasts. That was a really fun show. Uh, got some good feedback from that. You have any regrets or things you wish you put on the list, or uh, any rearranging after you've had some time to think about it? Maybe I would have moved Endgame to number one. Uh, come on down. Just, come on over. Just done it. Uh, just for the big success that it was and the cultural impact that it had wider. Mm-hmm. But I still stand by that Twelve Years a Slave is a very very excellent moving film yeah, yeah yeah of course i mean we did get some good feedback from that though uh a lot of people were happy thought they yeah. we got some cool uh some cool movies that they hadn't heard of maybe that they wanted to check out oh yeah people posted some great movies that i totally forgot about i was like oh yeah that's great and i was like yeah i still wouldn't have made my list but the great movie i'm just glad i got to remember it for a second right i was surprised we didn't have more overlap personally um, mm. but i was actually kind of glad of that too because then we you know we could talk about more different movies yeah, just shows how diverse everyone's taste is. It's right. awesome. It's awesome. Anyways, you can find those episodes. I told you where to find them. Um, you can like us on Facebook at the Second Day Film Podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Second Day Film. Check us out on Instagram at the Second Day Film Podcast. As I said, big show planned for today. We're going to start out talking about the 92nd Academy Awards uh, that are coming up here on February 9th. I'm uh, just going to touch on um, some of the big categories, the nominations. Uh, I'm going to make some picks of the big of all the categories, um, but I'll only really talk about the big ones. Mike might chime in with a few as well. Um, just want to do a little uh, preview, um, you know, of the ceremony uh, as it is, you know, the biggest night in movies, as they like to say. Whether or not, however you feel about award shows, that's your own thing. But uh, we can't ignore it that it is going to happen. Uh, so yeah, February 9th, live from LA. There'll be no host again this year, um, which I thought worked worked out quite well last year, personally. Um, so my picks, picks here, uh, last year, 13 out of 24, I was a little disappointed with that. I I thought I could do better. Um, and because in 2017, I got 18 out of 24, which I think is going to be tough to beat actually. Um, we'll see how we can do. Um, it's always kind of a tough balancing act when you're trying to pick Oscars because it's a fine line between who I should who I think should win, and trying to predict who I think the Academy will pick. Um, for the purposes of this exercise, I think it makes more sense, um, and this is a, a change from last year, I think it more, makes more sense for me to try and predict what the Academy is going to do, because um, 
I'm not in the academy. It doesn't matter who I pick. If I'm, if the goal is to get as many right as possible, I should tr be trying to predict it. Although I will say there's a couple of these categories where I refuse to divert from what I actually think is going to happen. And I will mention if my I would have picked someone else personally. Um, so let's get into it. Uh, the big categories here. Mike uh, has seen all but three of the films. I've seen every film but Jojo Rabbit um, when it comes to the Best Picture winners. Um and uh, let, let's start there with Best Picture. It's the biggest category of the night. The nominees, Ford vs. Ferrari, The Irishman, Jojo Rabbit, Joker, Little Women, Marriage Story, 1917, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and Parasite. Um, and for my purposes, um, this isn't the movie that I have ranked highest on my list this year, um, but it's a movie we're going to talk about later today. I think 1917 is going to win Best Picture. I think... Uh, from a technical standpoint, we'll get into much more of this later on this episode, um, but from a technical standpoint, what it took to make the film, uh, I really believe 1917 is going to win this award. Do you agree with me on that, Mike? I definitely think it's between Parasite, 1917, or The Irishman. Those yeah. would be my, my top three picks. Yeah, and I, I, we were talking about this before. My third, I think it's, I agree with you on Parasite. I think uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is the other one that has a chance to win. Um but yeah, I'm gonna go with 1917. That's I, a safe bet. Yeah, that's a safe bet. I think it's the, the probably the betting leader in the clubhouse. It's probably got the the low or the highest odds to win. But um, we'll see what happens. It's coming up. Best uh, actor in a leading role. We have Antonio Banderas uh, from Pain and Glory. I have not seen that. Leonardo DiCaprio, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I think he's already won his one Best Actor award that he's allowed to have. Uh, Adam Driver in Marriage Story. Joaquin Phoenix in Joker. And Jonathan Price and the Two Popes, which is which is another movie we're going to talk about here in a little bit. Um, this is a runaway easy winner for me. I think Joaquin Phoenix and Joker is going to win this one easily. What do you think? I have not seen Joker. Yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, I can. He's he's got something going on there. I think. I think him or him or Adam Driver, maybe. That that singing scene in Marriage Story is really really good. Yeah. Does, does Joker sing at all? Uh. Yes, uh, it's, it's kind of hard to say. He sings in a very Jokerish way. I don't know. Do you consider maniacal laughing singing? I don't really know. He's, I don't really if it's know. In what, tune. Yeah, I don't really know what he's doing the whole time in that movie. I just know that it's really captivating. I think he's that's that's the one I feel most confident about anything. Honestly, all right. Uh, best actress. We've got Cynthia Erivo in Harriet for her portrayal of Harriet Tubman. Scarlett Johansson in Marriage Story. Sarah Sarah Ronan, that is how you say it. Sersha. like inertia. I think she said that one time, didn't she? She did. You know, <laughs> and then some people just call her Sersha, and they don't really care, but we're going to no. go try and be correct here. Uh, Little Women, Charlize Theron in Bombshell, and Renee Zellweger in Judy, uh, portraying Judy Garland. Hmm. This is one where uh, I haven't seen Judy, and I think she that's, from what I hear or what I've been reading, that's probably the leader in the clubhouse. Uh, I haven't seen the movie, so I don't feel comfortable picking it. I don't know how good she actually is. I loved Charlize Theron in Bombshell playing Megyn Kelly. I mean, she Megyn Kelly is obviously someone we've seen on TV before. Mm -hmm. You know what she sounds like. You know what, how she acts. And she nails every second of it. Like, I literally thought I was watching. I saw uh, uh, mm -hmm. Megyn Kelly put on Instagram that she was, like, at the mall or something with her kids. And one of them saw the poster of Bombshell, and she was like, Mom, why are you on that poster? <laughs> Which has to be an extremely strange thing to happen to you uh, as just a regular person. Well, Megan Kelly's not really a regular person, but I'm a, I'm a Charlize Theron fan. She's one of my favorites. Um, I just thought she was fantastic in the movie, so I'm going to maybe purposefully pick wrong in that one. Uh, but maybe I'll be right. Who knows? What do, what do you think? Have you seen any of those movies? Uh, yeah, I have. I think uh, I think Bombshell's a good choice for that. Charlize is she's amazing. But uh, I don't know. I think there's something to Marriage Story. I think Scarlett Johansson uh, had some pretty good good moments in that that movie. Yeah, I mean she's nominated for Best Actress. They're all fantastic. Scarlett yeah. Johansson is another one of my favorites. I just wonder because Scarlett Johansson is a double nominee. Oh man! If, if, if she wins actually, both, I don't legend. think there's a chance in hell that happens. Legend. I don't think there's a Black chance in Widow hell. for the double win. I just I just feel like. She's, it's going to be a classic case of, yeah, you were great, but because you were great in both, they kind of take away from each other in some weird fucked up way. I don't know. I just don't really see her winning either, personally. Hmm. Um, but we'll find out. I'm going with my girl Charlize Theron. Best Supporting Actor, we have Tom Hanks in A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. How is Fred that a Rogers. supporting role? 
I, did you listen to my review when we reviewed it? I told you it's a movie not about him. He's hardly in it. He's like, he is a supporting character. The yes. main character is the reporter. Uh, Anthony Hopkins in The Two Popes. I think you can make more of an argument that why is that a supporting role? Uh, Al Pacino yeah. in The Irishman, Joe Pesci in The Irishman, and Brad Pitt in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. This one was hard for me. Uh, Tom yeah. Hanks is Tom Hanks. Uh, you know, you could say that about all these actors, actually. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, I loved Al Pacino in The Irishman. I was so close to putting him down. Um, but I think Brad Pitt is going to win. He won the Golden Globe. Uh, and, and the more I thought about his his performance in that movie, this subdued, like, sort of just, like, go-with-the-flow guy opposite of Leo's insane actor. And I, I just thought he was great in the movie. It's, it's such an interesting performance for Brad Pitt because it's so sort of in in this in the background, you could say. He, he plays the stunt guy. He's not supposed to be a famous guy. I loved it. I think Brad Pitt's going to win again. I, I think Al Pacino was just amazing in The Irishman. I don't know. Anthony Hopkins was really great in Two Popes, too. I just, Mike, I don't know. These Al people Pacino. were all nominated for Oscars. They are all good performances. I know. You're just sitting there I saying, know. oh, they were good is not anything earth-shattering. Al Pacino is my, my guess. <laughs> all right. It is a close second for me. Uh, best Supporting Actress, Kathy Bates and Richard Jewell. Uh, not Adam Sandler, unfortunately, for his uncut gems, but he was very happy for Kathy Bates. Like, that was funny when he... Put that on Twitter. Uh, Laura Dern in Marriage Story. Scarlett Johansson, as I mentioned, for Jojo Rabbit. Florence Pugh for Little Women. And Margot Robbie for Bombshell. Again, another really tough category. Um, I want Florence Pugh to win this thing. I just saw Little Women last night. Not going to review it today. Um, but, you know, we will uh, do that sooner rather than later. Maybe on the next episode. Fletcher, I'm trying to make Oscar picks here. Um... I want Florence Pugh to win. I'm going to pick Florence Pugh. I, I think it, you might get your Marriage Story wish here with Laura Dern, though. Yeah. She was amazing in Marriage Story. She has a great monologue scene. She also just... Oh, that court scene. Uh, I, yeah. I don't know. Laura Dern just has such a electric, like, passiveness to her. Uh, like, I... Ah, I don't know. I, I really want to see Little Women. I haven't... I like Florence Pugh a lot. So yeah, we'll, well, she had a big year with Midsummer also this year. I oh, saw, yeah. I saw oh, uh, Little Women last night. And Florence Pugh, honestly, this is a movie with Sarah Ronan. She's, uh, you know, uh, Emma Watson, Laura Dern's in that movie. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, Timothy Chalamet, Meryl Streep, Chris Cooper. There's all sorts of famous people in this movie. And Florence Pugh stole the show for me as Amy March. She just hmm. is like hilarious. Uh, she's the only person who consistently drew laughs from the theater the entire movie. I think she really just nailed the role that she was in. I'm going to pick her. I think that's kind of an under underdog pick. I don't think she's the favorite. I think uh, Laura Dern and Scarlett Johansson are probably the two favorites here. Margot Robbie was also fantastic as well in Bombshell. We're going to talk about that movie here in a little bit. I'm going to go with a little bit of a sleeper pick, though, in Florence Pugh. All right. And then the final category that we're actually going to discuss is Best Director. Uh, the nominees, this is a loaded category of Martin Scorsese for The Irishman, Todd Phillips for The Joker, Sam Mendes for 1917, Quentin Tarantino for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and Bong Joon-ho for Parasite. I think Sam Mendes is going to be a runaway winner for Same. 1917. Same. Uh, you can't watch that movie without noticing the direction and, and, and how it works. I think this is an easy one. It seems like you agree. Yeah, and we'll get into it later when we review it, but just the amount of directorial labor that went into this and... I mean the the craft of the anal the analyzing of just like moments and feet and like this shot has to hit this moment on the ground right here so we can see this angle and this I, yeah it's unbelievable it's an incredible achievement Sam Mendes just did a great job stay tuned more on that in a moment uh, the rest of the categories I'm not going to talk about them but I'm just going to read them off here best uh, animated featured film Toy Story four is up I loved. Um, I loved uh, How to Train Your Dragon, The Hidden World. I've loved that entire trilogy. That was a fantastic film. Yeah, that's a great trilogy. But I'm going to go with what they chose for the Golden Globes, Missing Link, which is that movie uh, by Laika. I talked about Kubo and the Two Strings in our top ten films of the decade episode. Mm. I loved this movie, Missing Link. I thought it was beautifully animated, had some great ideas, some great music, great voice talents. I think everyone needs to watch that movie, so I'm going to go for that. Cinematography, another easy one, 1917. I think it's got it in the bag. Uh, adapted screenplay, Greta Gerwig's script for Little Women, I think, is going to win, which is impressive considering she's adapting one of the most famous novels of all time. Or maybe it's not impressive. I don't know. It's uh, impressive. 
original screenplay. I'm going to give it to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood for uh, Quentin Tarantino's script. Really witty. Liked it a lot. Film editing, Parasite. I love the editing in that movie. I thought it was incredible. Uh, international feature film, Parasite. That's the, that's the, considering it's nominated for Best Picture, that one's basically, you know, like lob up a meatball and hit it out of the park. Uh, makeup and hairstyling, I'm going to give it to Bombshell. I thought that the, the women in that looked amazing. They looked, I mean, they're, it's Margot Robbie and Nicole Kidman and Charlie Theron. It's not hard to make them look amazing. But the makeup and hairstyling was fantastic. Original score, I'm going to give it to 1917. Uh, we'll talk about that in a little bit. But, uh, best original song, uh, I'm Gonna Love Me Again from Rocket Man. I think that's going to win. Uh, costume design, I'm going to give it to Little Women. Production design, 1917. Sound editing, 1917. Sound mixing, 1917. Uh, visual effects, Avengers Endgame. It's Got, the only category yeah, it's nominated. Which is annoying. It should be nominated for Best Picture. I think a lot of people can agree with me on that. Uh, documentary features, a movie I just watched today, American Factory. It's on Netflix. It's the only one I've seen, so I'm picking it. There we go. Uh, and I'm not going to lie with the shorts, basically a guess. Uh, animated short, Hair Love, documentary short, Learning to Skateboard in a War Zone. I thought that was a cool title, so I'll go with that. And live action short is Brotherhood. Never had brothers, but I've always been fascinated with brothers. So there you go. Those are my picks. We'll see if I can beat. Uh, career best is 18 out of 24, 13 out of 24 from last year. Think I'm going to beat it, Mike? You shook your head on a couple of those picks. I am rooting for you yeah. to beat it. Okay. Well, we'll see. We'll see what happens. Anyways, uh, Academy Awards on fe February 9th. We'll obviously talk about the ceremony once it happens, but those are my picks. All right, film fans, hope you're ready, because we're about to take your ass to church, kind of. Uh, we're going to talk about a film that was released on Netflix not too long ago. It's gotten a lot of attention uh, at the Academy Awards. It is The Two Popes. Uh, this film, uh, the plot summary on IMDb, Behind Vatican Walls, the conservative Pope Benedict and the liberal future Pope Francis must find common ground to forge a new path for the Catholic Church. Uh, this film is directed by Fernando Miralles, and stars, uh, well, it has a big cast, but really it's just stars Anthony Hopkins as Pope Benedict and Jonathan Price as Pope Francis. Um, Mike, this is an interesting movie for a lot of reasons. Um, where do you want to go with this? Um, uh, the first thing I would like to point out is how similar, in a lot of ways, this movie actually is to 1917. I mean, these are two movies that came out on um, the same year. These are both movies that really have a, a sprawling cast, and yet the whole movie is really just about two people who dominate the entire screen time. And these two people are very, very different in their personalities. There's a great conflict before them. They both have different perspectives on it, and yet one is going to be the one who eventually passes on the message, so to speak, wow. that will change the conflict and heal the situation for the better. And it's all about the two of these characters trying to navigate the conflict itself to deliver that message. I like that. I didn't, then, I didn't see where you were going with that at first, but you really brought that around. Yeah, they're like very that. similar movies in a lot of ways like that. Um, and this movie um, is, is very excellent um, to watch. Uh, it's a very uh, well-directed film, certainly well-acted, as both the leads are up for Oscars. Um, it's a very interesting take on the situation going on in the Catholic Church. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. no, for sure. I mean, I'm not going to lie. Going into this, I did not expect to like this movie. I did not expect to be like, wow, this is one of my top ten films of the year. Wow, this is something that I want to tell people to watch. I was just watching it because I saw it was nominated. I thought it was going to be like, like, I felt that way about like Phantom Thread a few years ago mm -hmm. uh, with Daniel Day-Lewis, his last film, and I was like, Okay, I gotta watch this, but I'm not excited about it. And I was right about that one. I didn't think that movie was that great. I thought it was long. I thought it was boring. So I, I didn't think religion, Catholicism, these aren't exactly topics that I'm that interested or care to explore. Um, but this movie surprised me. The, the leads, Anthony Hopkins and Jonathan Price, are so well matched. Their chemistry is just fantastic when you're watching them. You know, because really, you just talked about this film is just... Essentially, if you sit back and think about it, it's really just two guys talking the whole time yeah. in fancy rooms, and it's just fantastic to see sort of their verbal sparring, you know, they're sort of taking jabs at each other, sort of like a couple boxers trying to feel each other out and weaken the other one to get the other one to come to their side. Yeah. 
but how they find common ground and how they're able to understand each other and ultimately chart the best course for their religion is really awesome to watch, actually, because they're completely different people and somehow they find a way to figure this out. Sort of. I, I think what happens is that, and you kind of see it, especially near the end, you kind of realize what's happening is they switch roles. Mm-hmm. Like one takes on the role of, oh, like I'm the one holding down the fort and you're the one who is trouble. But then they switch. Mm-hmm. And then at the end, the other one is the one saying like, oh, I'm the one who needs to change and you're the one that needs to hold down the fort. And and it's a very interesting uh, switcheroo of you know character dynamics as well as... Uh, philosophical landmarks that they kind of you know try to hold plant the flag on mm-hmm. um i think the film does a fantastic job of sort mm-hmm. of humanizing these like literal godlike figures um and the way that like 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 when they're eating pizza together he's like do you like pizza or when like uh, they're watching football yeah or watching the tv show about the dog or talking about things that make them nervous or make them excited or make them scared like we're talking about popes here. You know, like the Pope, the head of the Catholic Church. This is one of the, the most revered figures in the world. And these are two guys that have both held that position. And when we're watching these conversations, it feels like you're watching two besties meet up to watch Netflix and chill. It's a good reminder that as much as these kind of men are revered in their religious spheres, it's it's a great reminder they're still human beings. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think sometimes... That does get lost in the celebrity like nature of that role and the way that kind of re- anything does it, but especially religion like can start so- idolizing like its leaders. And ironically enough, um, and I, I like seeing a movie that show that just shows the human side to who these men are. Um, I especially liked actually. There's there's good music in this movie. Right. Like there's a moment where you go in the Sistine Chapel and you hear the jazz. There's like all these little yeah, montages yeah. of like uh, like the voting process. I thought that was fascinating. The sort of the inside look to uh, the inner workings of the Vatican and how the cardinals and everyone work together and how they like. I, I feel like it was a cool glimpse into everything and the way it was shot with sort of like quick cuts and from different angles and I, I thought it was really. That's a way that they made the film more interesting. It is, it is wild to me, too, like, watching all that, how, how far Christianity has come since, you know, a, a Nazarene carpenter. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I, I grew up in church. I'm not Catholic, but I did grow up in church. And so I'm familiar with the Bible and the New Testament. And it, it is so strange to think of, like, its Middle Eastern roots as a, you know, as what was essentially a Jewish sect out of Judaism, and now it's like almost been taken over by, like, I mean, the smoke and like all the. I'm just like Jesus of Nazareth never did any of this kind of stuff. It's so. It's like all for show. Now. It's it so feels bizarre in a way to me. Like, and I don't mean that to insult any any Catholics or anything, but I think in some ways this this does show like all these guys are, they're talking about humility. Like, oh, we must be humble and stuff. And they're they're in castles. Like, they're, they're in... All, they these, have... all these rooms that they're having conversations yeah. in are, like, these ornate rooms and, like, just these de- decorative walls and all this stuff. Yeah, and they're talking about, like, are you going to be the humble pope? It's <laughs> like, oh, I'm going to be I'm gonna be humble and just wear just these shoes instead. And it's like, oh, yeah. why are you even wearing robes then? <laughs> like, what? I, I, there's a lot about... Come out in your starter jacket, there, pope. There's a lot yeah. about the movie that actually... That as it explores Catholicism, it kind of baffles me, to be honest. And there's a little bit of a cynical part of me that thinks, like, if I was a pope, this would be a great movie for me. Because it humanizes me. And it, it takes, like, all these huge crises, and it actually, in some ways, makes him feel less responsible for it. Yeah. Like, that scene where they're having the discussion about, like, look what happened with sexual abuse. Like, that's all handled, I must say very Hallmark-like. It's not really the point of the movie. I but I don't think it is either, but just the fact that these are the two guys that suddenly have to deal with this this huge organization and they're talking about the, the scandals within the church as if there's some things that these that they weren't a part of as leaders. Like, oh, I, like we were both shocked to learn all this. It's like, were you? Well, they, and then like, they, they try and do some know. of that. They try some and, PR work there for the for the Pope position, I think. They try and do some of the, like, oh, this isn't a perfect person. This is what you've dealt with. Especially through the flashbacks with Jonathan Price, which yeah. personally I found a little bit distracting when they just cut back to this long, like, 20-minute flashback of him telling the story and how why he can't be Pope because of this thing that happened in Argentina that he, 
you know, may or may not have supported or done correctly. I found that part of the movie would be a little bit distracting, but I think that was an effort to try and sort of, you know, show why that these people have flaws and not paint them with rose-colored glasses. But it really is a story about these two guys and their relationship, and nothing else is really explored that much. Yeah, and I don't know how historical it is either. I mean, I'm not Catholic. I don't really know a lot about the popes that much. Um or their, what their relationships... What I was more just like. judging this based on how entertaining it was to watch as a movie. Yeah. You know, yeah. with Jonathan Price felt like he was channeling his High Sparrow the whole movie. Oh, you know, yeah. Like, <laughs> definitely. I thought about that. Do you think they watched that, that Game of Thrones? They're like, oh, yeah, there's totally. our... There's our... They totally <laughs> thought of that, I think. But another thing I will say, I don't know, did you watch... You watched this on Netflix. Did you watch it all the way to the end? Because I did. Yeah. They go through the credits, and there's that scene... They show them watching the football game, which is, yeah, it's cute. But then there's a uh, there's a scene at the very very end. Did you see that? Uh, remind me of what it is. It's just it's just a, a quick couple seconds of just that wilderness that you see you see young Francis mm-hmm. out in the wilderness a couple times wrestling with his thoughts and his you know his faith. Now this is on me. <laughs> they just show at, at the at the end of the credits they just show that shot. Cool. I really loved that. Yeah, I thought, and overall, I thought it was a fantastic movie. Like I said, I wasn't expecting to like it as much as I did. Uh, I gave it an 8.5 out of 10. I would recommend everyone seek this out. It's on Netflix, easy to see. Uh, if for nothing else, to watch Anthony Hopkins and Jonathan Price both at the top of their game. Uh, what kind of letter grade are you giving this one? B plus or A minus. I don't know. Maybe somewhere in between. It was good. It was a good movie. Fletch, please. We're trying to do a podcast here. You know, I'll say this. He's this, still doing it. It's your good boy, Fletch. Please boy. stop. He's, he's just scratching. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> hey, come here. Come here. Hey, yeah, come sit with me. Thank you. No, but I will say this. The movie does do a good job of taking, like, the ancient experiences of religion and making, like, the philosophical conversations about it relevant today. I like I liked that about it. There you that, go. That was good. Check it out. The Two Popes on Netflix. All right, moving on to the second film I'm going to review today here on the January 27th version of the Second Day Film Podcast. It is called Bombshell. It is directed by Mr. Jay Roach. The plot summary on IMDb. A group of women take on Fox News head Roger Ailes in the toxic atmosphere he presided over at the network. Uh, This film stars an all-star cast uh, featuring Charlize Theron, Nicole Kidman, Margot Robbie, John Lithgow, Allison Janney, Malcolm McDowell, Kate McKinnon, Connie Britton, uh, Mark Duplass, Stephen Root, Robin Weiger. A lot of people in this movie. Most of them portraying uh, real people, which I always think is an interesting dynamic. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have to deal with Roger Ailes himself is not alive anymore, um, but John Lithgow portrays him in this movie and does a, a fantastic job. Really, this is a, a difficult movie to talk about. There's Things I liked and disliked about it, um, but this is a scandal that happened very recently, not too long ago, um, and you're portraying real people. Like I said, that, that's something that can always be um, tricky. The structure of this story um, is one thing I liked. They sort of give you, uh, they approach the film sort of from three different perspectives. You have the top of the line at Fox News, portrayed by... Uh, Charlize Theron playing Megyn Kelly. She's the star female anchor at the network. You have sort of like the middle, um, who is Nicole Kidman, who plays uh, Gretchen Carlson, who is the woman who originally brought this lawsuit against Roger Ailes. And then you have Margot Robbie, uh, who plays this girl Kayla, who's not a real person. Um, She's a made-up fictional character, but she's sort of like the young, um, you know, uh, intern working her way up the top. Uh, she's a production assistant who's ambitious and wants to make her way to the top. Was she a composition of a couple of real characters? Uh, it's possible. I think that it's more, she's a composition of a lot of people, um, because there was a lot of women who brought charges against Roger Ailes, I think in the 20s. Um, so I think maybe she's like an amalgamation of um, all sorts of different people. Um, but I don't know that for sure. I think she's more just supposed to be sort of like a generic, like, this is a woman who, you know, may have been perpetrated by... Uh, Roger Ailes. Anyways, that's the structure of this story. This comes from comes at it from three different ways. All these women work at Fox News, and they're not really interacting with each other a lot outside of one scene when they're on an elevator. I think that you see that in the trailer, you see that on the poster. Um, but really, they're they're 
doing separate stories the entire time. I already talked about Charlize Theron and, and what I thought was a fantastic performance as Megan Kelly. Um, she she is her. I mean, she is channeling her. Margot Robbie's also really good as this um, girl who's ultimately uh, you know has something bad happen to her as she's trying to work her way up. And also John Lithgow as Roger Ailes. I mean, he is just when you're watching this, he's just. It's, it's repulsive, but in a way, the film does sort of portray Roger Ailes a little bit sympathetic in weird ways. Um, but it's also definitely out there to be like, oh, this guy's kind of a pig. Um, but I think John Lithgow does a great job of sort of balancing that I'm a powerful guy. I'm not doing anything wrong. Almost like he doesn't understand what he's doing wrong in the movie, which maybe there was some of that <clears throat> going on. I thought it was the, a fantastic look at sort of the inner workings of a newsroom, or at least maybe what it's kind of like to work in media now. Although some of it is kind of exaggerated. Everyone sees in the trailer, uh, come up with something that is will shock your grandmother and interest your grandfather. That's a Fox News story. You know, like that is in every major news network these days. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are some of the things I like. I have a lot of things I dislike as well, and I'll get to those in a second. But Mike, uh, you haven't seen this movie. Um, but, um, I mean, what have you heard? What are you interested in about it? Well, I definitely would like to see it. Um, you know, it does kind of fall into the category of news media, you know, movies, and I always do love watching those. Um, I have some questions for you about it. The, the first kind of, it sounds like you've kind of already answered it, but how well is journalism portrayed in this? So I've never worked at a major news network. I've never worked at a TV station, so I, I can't say it for sure, but some of the stuff kind of rubbed me wrong, like the way that they're sort of like portraying media as like this, these brutish people looking for, you know, TMZ type headlines, which maybe that's how it is at Fox and CNN. But I also think there's a lot of hardworking actual journalists who compile news and make calls and do things there. Um, so I don't know if it's great, but it's, it's not bad either. It's interesting to watch, I would say. Yeah. Okay. Next question. This is a historical like biographical mm-hmm. drama, you know, how accurate is this movie to so historical events? That kind of gets into what I'm going to say. And I think that there's a lot of gray area there because you're talking a lot about, you know, obviously Roger Ailes maintained his innocence, his his lawyers maintained his innocence, but you have 23 women or 20-some women all saying that he acted inappropriately. So you do have a little bit of the he said, she said going on here, but when you have that many people corroborating uh-huh. something, there's clearly something that was amiss. Yeah. I think that this movie isn't really interested in getting it 100% factually correct because nobody knows what the 100% factual correct is. I think that it's it obviously has bias. That That's unavoidable. There's, you, when you're making a movie about this subject matter, there's it's unavoidable that it's not biased. It's a slam piece against Fox News. Let's not get that twisted. Like, it is a slam piece against Fox News. But it's not It's not as um, overtly damning of Fox News as you would think it would be. If you, when you, you would think if you had a movie about this subject that's made in Hollywood by a liberal director who's made no qualms about the fact that he's liberal, you would think it would be more directly like, screw Fox News and everything they do. There are things put in here. They talk about how Roger Ailes was a good businessman. They talk about how he built up Fox News to what it is. You know, they talk about how some people at Fox News support him and how some people work at Fox News just because it's a job. They don't necessarily agree with the politics. It's It does go a little bit in-depth with that, but it is biased. And, and the other thing that really bothered me about this movie is you're when you're watching this, you're painfully aware that you're watching a movie. It's not going to be like a, a, an experience that's going to take you somewhere or get lost in the story, like 1917, for example. Like, like titles of people who work there pop up just on screen out of nowhere, just like, this is who this person is. You know, there's dates on screen, there's voiceover that literally explains what the characters are thinking and what the building is like. They break the fourth wall. So it, it's really distracting at times. It's, it's, it makes you aware that you're watching a movie and, it's, and that it's one person's portrayal of what might have happened. And like I said, even though it seems pretty clear that Roger Ailes did do something wrong and it's likely that he's guilty of this stuff, because you're throwing things in like a made-up character like Margot Robbie, it has a little bit too much rhetoric. And you're setting this against a climate in 2019, 2020, where the Me Too movement is huge. People are speaking out about this stuff, which is good. It's important we tell these stories. It's important that victims of this kind of behavior, you know, have their stories heard and their voice listened to. 
But I think this is a really tough story to tell in today's political climate when it's so divisive. You're going to have people on one side that are like, yeah, this is great. And other people on their side are like, this movie's stupid. It's mm-hmm. just what, it's one person, what one person thinks. So I think that's kind of the issue. Does that answer your question? I kind of danced around it. Yeah, no, I think it does. I just think the irony of, you know, a biased film being made about a news station like Fox has a lot of karma to a, it. A biased opinion. film about a biased network. Mm-hmm. But you could flip it around and do the same thing. You could have a conservative filmmaker make a film about CNN and it would be the same thing. I mean, Matt yeah. Lauer, NBC. I mean, it's all over the place. It's pretty clear that there is a toxic climate. I mean, everybody agrees on that. Yeah. So, I mean, that's just my thing. It's it's a little bit too obvious <laughs> that it's biased. And the last thing I'll talk about, I think it's a little bit too preachy at the end. It, it, it hmm. ultimately tries to make this statement like all these women banded together and got this guy out of power, which they did. It's a true story. It happened. Um but the movie wants to, like, end on this sympathetic, like, uplifting note that, like, this culture's changing and all this. And I don't think it really is. I mean, it's it's better. Maybe it's better. Maybe it's worse. But this film doesn't really earn that preaching message for me because when you're watching with the voiceovers and the stuff pop, popping up on stage, it's more exploitative than powerful, I mm. would say. You know, it, it, it does that make sense? That it's not really, like, a film that's trying to promote that message. It's more just like, well, look what these assholes did, you know? Yeah. Yeah, so, I'll, I'll have to watch it, man. I kind of want to see it. It's yeah, I, th- I think it's a nice idea, and it's it, it was a entertaining movie to watch because the performances are so good, and it's quick and whippy, and the script is you know interesting and quirky, and uh, I like it. I liked it. I liked the movie. It was entertaining <clears throat> to watch. Um, although someone in my theater fell asleep, uh, a lady, uh, and I could oh. hear her snoring, <laughs> so maybe that's not the best sign. Oh no! But I did hear the man that she was with say, "quote I thought this was one you'd actually stay awake for." So oh. not sure why. Not sure. Not sure why you would bring someone with a history of falling asleep at the theater to a theater. But hey, I was glad they were there. I gave this a seven point five out of ten. All right, the final film we're going to review here today on the Second Day Film Podcast is a film that I just picked for several awards, including Best Picture. Um, it is called 1917. It is directed by Sam Mendes. The plot summary, two young British soldiers during the First World War are given an impossible mission. Deliver a message deep in enemy territory that will stop 1,600 men and one of the soldiers' brothers from walking straight into a deadly trap. This film stars Dean Charles Chapman of Game of Thrones fame, and George McKay. There's also brief appearances um, from actors such as Andrew Scott, Benedict Cumberbatch, and Colin Firth. Um, But this is a pretty straightforward movie, a technical marvel, as we uh, will say multiple times and we've already briefly touched on. I loved everything about this movie, but Mike, I'll throw it to you first. What did you think about 1917? I loved it. I thought it was an amazing film. Uh, It's nice to see a movie go back to like that old like that old school style of just like, look, we're making a movie and we just have to like line up all these shots just right and get this all right physically. Um, I just want to give people some like a little bit of behind the scenes details because this is, we've talked about this movie and it is a hugely technical accomplishment of this film. Just give you an idea. 5,200 feet of trenches were built just for this movie. That's enormous. I mean, the, the mini sets they built, the windows, like, actually opened for them to move the camera through it. Mm-hmm. So they would have, like, like you know, they're shooting inside a house, and as the camera moved forward, the window actually breaks off so the camera could be moved through that window. But they were building tons of sets like these. Um, you know, when there's a scene with flares, they actually, that was real. They had to time the flares with how the camera was moving and where he was going to be in each shot as they were tracking George McKay. McKay. Um... There was rigorous uh, rehearsal, um, and just down to even, like, the amount of, like, just the the math of, like, how large is this space of land, and how fast is this actor going to run across it, which means we have to see this much. Um, They did four months of blocking. Um, It was just an incredible technical achievement. Yeah, so for those of you that don't know, what Mike is touching on is this film is shot... Uh, in, in what they call one shot or a continuous shot, the tracking so shot, the tracking yeah. shot. So, so for those who don't know, when you're watching the movie, it appears as if the entire movie is taking place in one take. There's no cuts. There's no there's no jumping to a different location. The camera is following the actors in one continuous movement the entire 
movie, which has a runtime of close to two hours, I think. Uh, uh, we, yeah, so. we should clarify, though, that at the end of the day, the movie is not entirely one shot. Like, there are actually moments where... The, like someone walked in front of the camera and they, you know, and they blend that moment with another one. Right, the movie is mo- made to look like it's one shot. But yeah. The movie is not technically actually one because shot. Because one, although I did see a tweet from Ryan Johnson who said one of the producers told him it actually was in one shot, and uh, that that um, Benedict Cumberbatch was standing in that bunker waiting for them to come to them. Ryan Johnson went on a sweet thread about this that somebody told him that I have a hard time believing that, but whatever it is. They definitely filmed this movie in one, in long takes, long yes. continuous shots, mm-hmm. yeah. so that when the cutting process comes, it gives the illusion that this entire thing is happening all at once. And for that reason, this movie is a technical marvel. The way the, the camera moves and circles around the actors, the way it goes up over things and under things, the way it goes underwater and around corners, it's an immersive experience to trench warfare like we've never seen before. Uh... It's uh, it, to me. It almost felt like you were playing like Medal of Honor or Call yeah. of Duty it does back in the like day because you're basically like the guy who's we're running with the other troops, following the shoulders in that first person point of view. I felt like I was in playing Call of Duty. Well, the movie does feel like a video game because of how, especially war video games like games like Call of Duty or Medal of Honor, they almost do feel like cinematic experiences where. You know, you're on this little trek of a very plotted point that you're, you as the gamer are moving through, kind of like with this movie. And, you know, what actually works about that for a war like World War I is that World War I was a war of space. It was about gained and lost ground, even to the point of feet and inches. So a movie that's so focused on the movement on ground in space is, is actually kind of very subtly quite meaningful to that particular war. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought that was a very interesting... If you're going to do a one-shot movie w- about a war, World War One's kind of, like, subtly the most perfect, perfect war to pick for that. Yeah, you couldn't do this with something like Iraq. I mean, I guess you could, but but it's, it is it is perfect. I mean, the way that everything occurs. And, of course, this is it is the structure of the plot. This is yeah. a simple plot, just two guys trying to get from one point to another to stop an attack. And, and I'll even add, like, that, you know, the use of a one-shot camera like that for a war movie, it does kind of capture a lot of the themes that soldiers talk about with the experience of war where sometimes it is kind of just boring and it's it's like there like there's moments where when they're fighting and, and they're shooting and he's trying to hit a sniper it was kind of hard to see mm-hmm. it, like it was exciting in that oh no oh don't get shot but it wasn't like something where oh there's explosions and it's so epic looking it's like no it's not it's just one guy huddled down you kind of can poke your head out maybe see okay take a shot at the window oh i heard a weird thunk did i get him mm-hmm. that's kind of what war has been really like it's it's uh and the solo camera is what makes that work and also what does sometimes limit it limit it in some ways but that's also to show the limiting perspective of just one soldier in the middle of a large war like that so it's an experimental uh, type of movie like that. Um, there's only there's yeah. only one so many things you can do when you're using this technique. So for that right. reason, you don't get these huge sweeping battle scenes. At all, there is one at the end there's that we'll one. talk about. Yeah, there's one. Um, yeah. But it's still it's not the battle scene in the traditional way that we've seen them in war movies because you're not having cuts and stuff. But right. I think that you know you talk about the downtime. This movie starts and ends with the, with our main character taking a nap by a tree. Yeah. Um, when you're when they're moving through these trenches, or they're moving through these uh, broken down buildings, or they're moving across these fields, I found myself constantly looking at the peripherals to see what was going on. Right. You know, you can tell there was so much care and energy put into every shot, in the placement of things, in the things that are going on in the background, in the set design, in the production design. Every shot is so purposeful, and the stuff that we see going on in the background, you know, guys being carried away, guys smoking cigarettes, guys throwing up, uh, you know lanterns falling or grenades running in or guys standing up and down like you could watch this head or you could watch this movie like four times and if you had your head on a swivel you would see different things every single time because it's so dynamic in the background behind our main characters it's really amazing to see and and part of that actually is is because they use so much natural lighting in it Mm -hmm. and then what's remarkable is how consistent the lighting actually is throughout the movie the fact that they did that many different like takes to get this one continuous shot how how much natural lighting actually stayed the same throughout all those shots? It's unbelievable. I did not see so so uh, Dean Charles Chapman, who played Tom and uh, Baratheon in Game of Thrones. That's what mm-hmm. most people recognize him yeah. from. 
He ends up dying halfway through this movie, and I, I did not see that coming. I did. I, I totally I thought did it was from the in, trailer. Oh, well, I thought it was an interesting and impactful direction to take the story, mm-hmm. because it really sets our other character uh, in motion for what he needs to do, Schofield. Um, because he really wouldn't have gotten to where he needed to go without that motivation, I think. But I thought it was an interesting choice. So, you say you know, though. I, I kind of had a guess because, you know, you know the movie's about these two guys going to deliver this message, right? Mm-hmm. And the one guy is like, oh, it's going to be your brother who's in the attack if you don't go. And then just by, by watching the trailer, you start realizing that all these guys are in, in shots together. And all of a sudden, just George McKay is in some of the shots, especially the huge epic one. It's like, mm-hmm. huh. Why isn't the other guy in the shots, I wonder? That looks like it's a probably pretty important big scene. I'm like, yeah. oh, I bet he's going to die. Like, that's going to be so the moment. So speaking of the trailer and that big epic scene, which everyone's seen, running, scene. running across no man's land as the charge is going on, Thomas Newman's incredible score yeah. uh, picks oh, up and yeah. crescendos. You're going to see that in film montages for years to come. But that's that, that instantly iconic. Felt, yeah, it instantly felt like an iconic move, moment in movie history. Classic, yeah. So good. I, I got, I'm getting goosebumps just thinking about it right now. Um, and, and just the choice to do that, with the bombs blowing up and the guys yelling, running across the field. I almost wish it wasn't <clears> shown in the trailer, because I feel like as impactful as it was, it might have been even more impactful without that. And nice little shout-out and cameo for Jamie Parker, who <laughs> plays the... The captain, who's like, don't go over, don't, don't, and then and Jordan McKay just starts running. Uh, uh, also, Parker, you want to talk about cameos, we have a, a Richard Madden, we have a Stark and a Lannister. I know, <laughs> I was like, oh man, wouldn't it be great if it turns out his brother is going to be, uh, it's going to be Jack Leeson. It's like, t- if, if the guy, kid who played oh, yeah. Joffrey yeah. is actually the brother, it wasn't I was quite like, that. oh, that'd be so epic. It wasn't yeah, but quite it was perfect. Richard Madden, though, who played yeah. Rob Stark great. in uh, a, Game of Thrones. Did a great job with the emotional connection of that yeah. character. So we have, a, we have a Stark and a Lannister, well, Baratheon technically, but we all know he's a Lannister. But, uh, so you have those two that end up being brothers, and it's like a whole thing, and he's like me, except taller. Fun fact <laughs> about the running scene. When he's that famous shot you see in the end of the trailer, when he's like running across the battlefield as they charge, uh, in the in the scene, like as he's running, the music crescendo is just this moment of desperate, like I gotta get this message, or all these guys are gonna die. People start plowing into him, mm-hmm. like as they're charging, because you know they're they're running out to a battle, and here's some guy running literally horizontal to them, and he just starts getting plowed into. That really happened mm-hmm. accidentally. They had told the actor that, like, look, we just got to get this shot. You just have to run no matter what. Whatever happens, if, like, a bomb goes off too close to you or, like, you know, you trip or something, just whatever. Just keep getting up just to run. We have to do that. Mm-hmm. Guys start plowing into him. It was not intentional. It was really an like accident. It. And, like and he just kept going. And I think it just makes it look even better. Makes and it also feel legit. Sh- also shows the importance of improv. So all you actors, <laughs> learn how to improvise. Take some improv classes. So so we've talked a lot about, uh, you know, the, the thematic. Or we've talked a lot about the technical aspect of this film. We've talked yeah. a bit about the plot. Thematically, when I, for, when you saw this movie before me and I asked you about what did you think and you said when you, right after you watched it that you, you didn't know if you 100% felt it like you thought you were gonna. You didn't yeah. connect with it like you thought you were gonna. Because thematically, it's basically pretty simple. It's it's that this uh, the kid played by Dean Charles Chapman is all about doing his duty and getting to his brother and wanting to get home, and this is what we have to do to win the war. And the other guy, who we find out has a wife and kids at home in the very, at the very end, is reluctant. He's like, when I go home, I just want to come back. I don't like when I go home because then I have realize that I have to leave again. And by the end of this, I think that he comes full circle and is like, I have to do this. Because this is what I have to do to get home to my people. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought thematically that it ended up being simple but powerful. Um, I mean, it, has it, did it stick with you more the more you thought about it? Um, yes, yes and no. Um, I still think that emotionally I'd wish there had been a little bit more chances for dialogue. Especially early on in the movie. There are kind of some stretches of their, them just walking in the tre- trenches. Or it is, they, they, no one just kind of talks, and I kind of wish there'd been more talking there. Um, and a lot of the movie, although it's great suspensefully, they have to be quiet. Yeah. A lot of the movie. By the is nature just, of the plot. Yeah, it's just. The, the you plot have to itself watch. doesn't leave much space for character development and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah, and I kind of wish there'd been a little bit more of that with these characters. Um, so, but, but definitely the scene where he starts running, and you're, you're watching a soldier in a, in a war where his whole focus is just trying to stop the war. 
I think that's that's really powerful. I really connected with that that like scene where he's running, um, and it does like have that kind of cyclical nature of it too, where you see the movie starts with him against the tree resting, and the movie ends with him against the tree resting, and it does kind of offer that you know maybe this possible theme that war is sadly cyclical. You know, we send these young men to f- go off and fight and die over space. Over just this plot of ground, and this, and you know that's a very sad reality that the movie kind of confronts you with. About you know we think of oh like these guys are playing teenagers in every other movie, and mm-hmm. this movie they're still playing like really young guys, and that's the whole point is like all these wars were fought by guys in their like teens and their early twenties. Like well, and he has crazy. to leave. He has to leave like where he dies. I mean, yeah. he's on this mission, so he he has to leave him there. And the, the captain that runs into him, he feels bad about it, but ultimately he's like, come on, we got to go, yeah. we got to keep moving. And then uh, Benedict Cumberbatch guy, the guy who has to call off the attack, he's unsympathetic as hell. He's just like, well, fuck off, like, get out of here, yeah. I have, you just saved all of us, but he doesn't care. And then he just goes somewhere else and goes to sleep against a tree, and someone else will have to do this again tomorrow. So I do think that is there is something to that. Overall, though, I thought this was a fantastic film. I have it at number three in my top ten films of the year. Only Avengers Endgame and Parasite are ahead of it for me. Uh, Nominated for Best Motion Picture, Best Achievement in Directing, Screenplay, Cinematography, Makeup and Hairstyling, Production Design, Music Written, Visual Effects, Sound Mixing and Sound Editing, and as I said earlier, I think it's going to win maybe at least half of those. I think this is going to clean up. It should. The technical achievement that was this movie is uh, is very much deserving of awards. I give it a great A. Yeah, I give great it a nine. Movie. I give it a nine out of ten, and as we've discussed, that's as high as I give it. So, um, big time recommend for nineteen seventeen. Do you have anything else you want to touch on? For anyone who goes to watch it, do me a favor and tell me something. I don't think the camera ever moves backwards. Like that was something I was starting to notice throughout the movie, and when I was done, I had that question. I was like, did the camera ever move backwards? I think, the, the, like, ironically, the camera almost always moves forward. Yeah. Well, maybe that's, you know, their goal is to move forward. Yeah. So. And that, so that was something I was wondering. If you guys notice, does the camera ever move backwards? All right. Find well, that out for me. And one last thing. Go see this movie in the theaters. You have to see this movie in the theaters. It's not going to be as impactful if you don't see it in the movie theater. See it in IMAX if, if, it's, if it's available. It's... Uh, it really is a movie that you need to see on as big a screen as possible. Sam Mendes has said that repeatedly, that that's the way this movie is meant to be seen. But uh, big time positive review from both me and Mike for 1917. Anyways, that's going to do it here for today's episode of the Second Day Film Podcast. We appreciate you listening. Check out our old episodes, including the our top ten films of the decade on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at Second Day Film. Like the Second Day Film Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. Uh, we would really appreciate it. Mike, nice work today. You got anything else you want to say to the people? Yeah, go listen to our stuff and don't at me about your Star Wars comments. <laughs> yeah, terrible takes from Mike. He just said Jar Jar was his favorite character. Once this again. This is a lie, sir. How <laughs> dare you call yourself a journalist and lie about your friend. Anyways, for Jar Jar Binks, Mike Nichols, I'm Brandon Champion. I'm Mike Nichols. Thanks for listening to the Second Day Film Podcast, and we'll see you at the movies.